Bet365 sponsors the TIFO Football Podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets including first, last or anytime goal scorers and with over 45 million members is the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can now follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Alex Stewart. Good morning, Joe. And Seb Stafford Bloor. Hello, Joe. Today we are going to be discussing broad themes from the games. Again, we record too far away from the weekend to get away with this being a What Happened at the Weekend podcast. So that's why we pretend that they're about broad themes and then we do the same thing that everyone else does, but maybe too in a different way, a little bit more fun. I tell you, we've got Newcastle Brighton coming up. I tell you, we have Chelsea Liverpool, Southampton Tottenham, which I didn't watch. Uh, but of course, here we have a fan of either club in Alex and uh, Seb. So that'll be exciting. Um, do you know what I know definitely is exciting? Is it the athletic? I feel like there's no uh, excitement in the way that there once was around that that sort of line. But uh, So I'm going to try it one more time. And uh, Alex, I want to hear from you and Seb at the same time, please. Do you know what I know is exciting? The, the athletic. athletic. Yeah. It works, doesn't it? It's a bit like asking the room if that's really the loudest they can clap, uh, which everyone has loved since the 90s. Yes, it is The Athletic, and everyone's loved The Athletic since the 90s, which is technically impossible because it wasn't around before five years ago. But I think people, they had this idea in their head that one day uh, would be born and they always knew it was going to work before, you know, people realised the realities of of modern media and um, the industry. But they always knew, I think in the future there's going to be incredible and amazing uh, sports journalism available for such a small price and back then of course people were paying for newspapers and you know they spent you know uh, double digits monthly on um, on stuff not the case now obviously people have, have grown used to i'm doing a history of media this is this has gone too far the athletic is the best place for uh, for sports uh, journalism online and for for the entirety of september you can join with a 1 pound introductory fee uh, so i would highly encourage that that you do that and you can do so by visiting theathletic.com forward slash tifo that's theathletic.com forward slash tifo for all your sporting needs i think there's 11 sports that we cover um there's a dedicated journalist for each premier league team we have some for the championship too hey we've even got one for the bundesliga in uh rafa harnigstein i just like to sing that before his name i didn't forget it and of course la liga and Serie A too lots of people lots of people um, and lots of experts, I should say. And I'm finding it really difficult to to round this bit up. Can someone just step in and just take over? And, and uh, Just I do can't... your awkward silence bit. Just stop talking and then leave sort of 15 seconds of dead air. And then I think everyone will be kind of suitably prepared for what happens next. Going to leave you in the warm hands and the, uh, the cool embrace of Alex Stewart and Seb Stafford-Bloor.
Okay, let us begin with Newcastle Brighton. Newcastle Brighton, a wonderful game of exciting football. Not if you're a Newcastle fan, of course. It was an awful game if you're a Newcastle fan. But it was a wonderful game if you were a Brighton fan or a neutral. Um, and I'd like to kick off proceedings by by talking about uh, Tarek Lamptey, if I may. Because uh, I think, you know, we mentioned him last week. Well, actually, we didn't mention him. I accidentally put him in the title of the podcast because I thought I'd talked about him. <laughs> because I really liked him. That, actually. <laughs> and I didn't talk about him, which is weird. Um, but uh, what a player. Oh, my God. It's very, very exciting. I get, I get thrills and chills when he gets the ball. Can I say... Uh, he had the run on San Maximan for the entire 33 minutes that San Maximan was on that pitch. The moment, I, th- I think it was the moment that San Maximan w- was injured. Tarek Lamptey, who c- can only be five foot six or five foot seven or something, uh, if that, uh, turned him inside, you know, almost like a sort of rotating Russian doll. And uh, th- through sort of, you know, I don't know, breaking the laws of physics, managed to shrug off this much larger man. Um, he has the strength. He has the pace. There's no way if uh, if Newcastle watched Brighton's first performance uh, last weekend that they wouldn't have said to San Maximan, "If you are playing in this position, you must uh, you must track back with Tarek Lamptey because clearly he started the season brightly. He's obviously going to be a threat. And what was it within the first I don't know the first few minutes? Uh, he is the he's the reason for uh, well, San Maximan is the reason for the conceded penalty, which Tarek Lamptey of course won. Um, I'm very excited about him, and I I, I wonder. Uh, Alex, I know you've got some you've got some stuff to talk about him too. But first, Seb, I wonder: is it possible that this is a, an example of a player who's kind of exploded onto the scene uh, and and hasn't left enough time for opposition clubs to 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 treat treat him purposefully or, or deal with him effectively? Or do you think that this is just a player who can who can do everything? I mean, he's a tenacious defender. He's exceptionally fast. He just seems to cut through defenders on his way into the box. He he has no fear. I just love watching him. What, what do you expect from him this season? Are we, uh, is this is this a blip? Well, no, I think blip's the wrong word. I think he, he, whenever a player emerges, you've always got to give a little bit of time to opposition teams to adjust around him and start game planning. But there's no need to be negative. I mean, everything he's done so far has been really positive. None more so than the, actually the decision to leave Chelsea in the first place. I love it when a player takes control of their career. So his situation was that... Um, he had six months left on his deal and Chelsea were keen to extend him, but that he believed, partly because of Reese James's emergence, that his pathway to the first team wasn't clear enough. And so he um, he was determined to leave, hence the very, very small fee. And I, I just really like that mindset. It's very sort of Jaden Sancho-esque. It's just to say, right, this is going to be me. I'm going to go out. I'm going to make a career and a name for myself and I'm going to be proactive. I, I just really admire it. Yeah, okay. Alex, what do you make of him as a player? I'm genuinely quite excited to watch his development um i mean obviously the thing with lamptey that catches the eye is uh the speed with which he carries the ball um and his ability to take defenders on but i think there are a couple of other things that are really interesting um as you've said his one-on-one defense is is really impressive there are a couple of of instances uh where not only did he make last ditch tackles but he was coming inside uh, to cover across um, on the right hand side, Ben White was getting forwards um, quite significantly for for Brighton as a almost a dare I say it, overlapping centre back, um, and and Lamptey had the awareness and the speed to be able to cover that space in behind, which is really impressive. Um, he also did it centrally against Chelsea, um, 
tracking back and, and making a couple of tackles. He also, I think, which is really interesting, given that he is very, very quick and he is very good at taking players on, he isn't always bombing forwards. He he will quite happily sort of sit around the halfway line and, and patiently wait for the play to develop before making his move. So he's not the sort of wing back who is just trying to get forwards and use his pace. He has a, a sense positionally of where he's supposed to be. He worked really, really well, particularly with Trossard, uh, you know, either staying wide or coming inside if Trossard was moving out. Uh, White was able to find him with a couple of really, really nice penetrating through passes that he was able to cut in field on. One last thing I think that's interesting is a couple of times his throw-ins were really good. Um, there was one instance where he he did a throw-in that, that managed to get the ball basically to the edge of the Newcastle box by taking it quite quickly and throwing it quite flat. And he he seems like a player, I, I know that's maybe an odd instance to highlight, but it all speaks to me of a player who will be categorised as somebody who is fast and, and good at dribbling and good at taking on players. But actually, there's a lot of game intelligence there already. And I think under a coach like Graham Potter, uh, and particularly playing, you know, with with Ben White behind and inside of him, uh, he's going to develop into somebody who's really, really good. Um, because that kind of game intelligence is much harder to teach, uh, and it looks like he's already got it. I'm very excited, and also we can use Tarek Lamptey to segue into it, to the next part of this conversation with Brighton, because in the second half, obviously they were they were two 0 up at the point. Uh, Tarek Lamptey, who I th- think may have picked up a knock, I-, I was watching with the sound off at that point, it looked like it, uh, but anyway, uh, Brighton wanted to change their system, they took off Tarek Lamptey uh, for Dan Byrne, which incidentally, I think might ha- be in contention for the greatest height differential in any <laughs> substitution ever, where a player That's is essentially going to the foot, same position. It? Yeah. It's huge, honestly, it just lo- watching Dan Byrne play is just weird because he makes everyone else look like a child. It's like watching, you know, junior football or under 16s or something where one of the players has matured much, much more than everyone else. But Dan Byrne is just an, is an extra man. I think that's what they call him. But I, I was curious about this because Brighton's system to that point had worked really well because um, they, they played a 3-4-3 in the, or a 3-4-2-1, I think, really, in the, in the first half against Newcastle's 4-4-2. And repeatedly, they were able to just pass the ball straight through one or even in some cases two of Newcastle's defensive lines. And I, I, I do appreciate that that, uh, that also speaks, speaks to, to the system but also speaks to Newcastle's inability to... to uh, to defend in this game or really, really to press down or to know what to do um, and when Tarek Lamptey was on the pitch uh, and I think it was Hendricks on the other side wasn't it that Newcastle's midfield was just so spread that uh, there was so much space in the middle so I was a bit surprised when they when they changed the formation Seb and I were chatting about it at the time they changed I think to uh, to a four four two when they brought Dan Byrne on who played um, played at left back or played at right back sorry and I think, um, Seb, your point was to say that maybe this is just like having four centre-back type players on the pitch to, to, to defend a lead for the last 30 minutes of the game, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like um, because I was watching the game on a delay, I was a little bit prejudiced by um, you, your spoiler. Um, and yeah, so I was sort of looking out for the substitution. But it felt to me as if it was, a, it was Graham Potter saying that Newcastle have created nothing. The only way they're really going to get back into this game is through a set piece. Um, you know, through some sort of law of averages type of football. 
And Dan Byrne was a kind of a, an answer to that. He is the extra centre back. He makes it a little bit harder um, to create anything from a set piece. It's also like, I mean, I, I feel like we might be a little bit being a little bit disrespectful to him because he had a very good season last year. Um, and Dan Byrne. Oddity, yeah, I felt. How he, are we um, being disrespectful? I, I well, no, just in the sense that, like, man. I feel like maybe I well. Our conversation was at the time because we said, well, sort of the only the only virtue to him is to kind of um, to put him in as a, an extra obelisk at the back. Um, and in reality, like you kind of because of his height and because of the weird little dynamic of seeing a um, such a tall player playing you know, in a fullback position, it has this sort of novelty value which distracts from um, what a competent defender he actually is. But yeah. I think in this instance, it was a. It was a it was a measure to protect a winning position. Brighton had their game won. The only way they weren't going to finish with all three points was if something silly happened. And it was just a you know it was a just a, a smart move. I mean I, I don't know what influence um, Lamptey's injury played in that, um, or whether that that decision would have made be made had he not picked up a knock. But it just felt smart. It was one of those where um, this is the right change being made at the right time. It speaks volumes, I suppose, of Graham Potter, doesn't it? If we, certainly, if we're going to take it in in that fashion, because they were so dominant in the game. And again, I don't, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful to Newcastle, but Newcastle were, were not were not in this game of football. No. Certainly, for mm. the first half. In the second half, they improved, and I think as the system changed, they found more time on the ball. They were able to string some passes together, um, but it it wasn't responding to any kind of threat. It was preempting a possible threat, and I think that's the thing that's that's the thing that's smart. Um, I would like to talk about Newcastle for a moment because you mentioned set pieces there. I stole this statistic from the commentary team, so those watching the game will have heard it. But apparently last season, 37% of Newcastle's goals came from set pieces, right? And also, they had the, the they were the team with the lowest XG across the course of the season. They had a number of corners towards the end of this game, and I appreciate that obviously bringing on Dan Byrne and having a tall Brighton back line was going to help that. Newcastle's set pieces looked completely toothless to me. Uh, and that is a very worrying if um, if they had had the you know the team with the lowest xG of the entire season anyway and 37% of the goals they did score came from set pieces and those corners looked bad that would be a slightly uh, worrying sign for me um, I would also say that I thought um, I think I mentioned this to you at the time Seb as well I, I I've noticed for the first time the lack of crowd and I think that's because of Callum Wilson new signing his first game at St James's Park which I know there's I know there's a bit of a cliche about Newcastle and and strikers and you know but presumably like one of the reasons to sign for Newcastle is to go and play in front of that crowd and your your debut at St James's Park would be a memorable occasion right that's the sort of thing I hear players saying that they remember so I I, I really do wonder if that would have had um uh, would have been either had an impact on the way that the game was played or just have been kind of sad in a way for, for Callum Wilson who looked frustrated throughout the game uh, because he barely touched the ball and didn't really have any service and you know was was sort of chasing it down valiantly uh, but very rarely got into positions you know with any more than what you, what you might call a fifth of a chance or a quarter of a, of a chance. That's a really interesting point, Joe, because I think if you take away the crowd and the environment and the kind of the mythology of St. James's Park, you're you're not left with an awful lot at the moment. What I will say is that uh, as a result of that game in the aftermath, I think Newcastle and particularly Steve Bruce were particularly fortunate. There were no supporters in the ground um, because there's um, behind the scenes, there's been this kind of continuous back and forth between um, loyal members of the press and the fans. Um, over what Steve Bruce's role is and, and how effective a manager is and, and how deserving he is of his position. Um, and 
um, obviously it comes with a caveat that uh, maybe the lack of a crowd uh, takes away the home advantage. There's a pretty good TIFO video which explores that concept that Alex wrote a few months ago. It's a nice little plug. Um, but I feel like uh, in that kind of situation, no matter um, how good a coach Graham Potter is and um, you know how talented a team he's building at Brighton, losing 3-0 at home to that kind of side, uh, that is kind of the precursor to a fairly toxic atmosphere. Um, yeah. and that would have transcended, you know, sort of any novelty of, uh, you know, Callum Wilson playing there or any, any traditional fondness for number nines or goal scorers. So it's really interesting. I, that set piece statistic is, uh, I feel like that's front and center of the argument against Bruce is that, uh, there isn't an awful lot going on there. Again, this is something that got touched on in, um, the sensible transfers video that Alex did, but if you take away those avenues, what what's actually left there um yeah. you know what are the routes to goal what is happening under the hood of that newcastle first 11 uh, there's not an awful lot beyond uh, we've made a joke of it in the past about how um the uh main sort of device of attack is to give the ball to alan samax man you know 60 yard from from goal hope he beats six players and scores you know the best goal of his career every time well, if he's stuck pinned by uh, exactly. by Derek Lamptey, then he and, he and he's eighty yards from goal. Do you know what I mean? Like, if it's Absolutely as simple as that not. to try and stop it. Also, like, I cannot understand. You know, I haven't watched Newcastle enough to say this with any real confidence. But from the evidence of this game, if you're going to play a two-man midfield against a three-man or what's effectively a three-man midfield, then John Joe Shelby cannot be one of those people. Exactly. Because exactly. he he just. I, I, as I said, I, maybe this is maybe this is a one-off thing, and maybe you know the two goals in the game were so early that obviously that just completely changes the mentality, that completely changes the game plan. In a way, it's difficult to learn anything long-lasting from a game where the first two goals come in the first ten minutes, right? But I just felt like he didn't really chase any balls, you know, like it, it, or, or he didn't know where he was supposed to be defensively. <clears throat> and I've never criticised his ability to pass. I think he's a fantastic passer. I'm sure if he was afforded the space and the time. Uh, he'd be able to find Callum Wilson, and that could be that could be a regular uh, duo. But it, it it seemed really problematic to me. If I was a Newcastle supporter, uh, you know, particularly after the disappointment of the of the summer, not the transfer window. I mean, you know, the expectation around the takeover. I think the tr transfer window has been actually you know more exciting than it ordinarily would be for Newcastle. And Jamal Lewis is is, Without a, is a very, question, very good player too. It's been a very productive transfer window actually for Newcastle. It hasn't. The yeah. the the only problem is is that sort of they went into the summer with this expectation of a kind of a Manchester City style transfer window, you know, one of those kind yeah. of early days of a takeover where, you know, it's like the, the dynamic is of a teenager cheating on championship manager. Um, and because it hasn't lived up to that, you know, the sort of, um, it's obscured just how much better it has been than the kind of the, the, the mean window that, um, that has become typical under Ashley. Um, yeah. Jamal Lewis is a really good player. I think Wilson's a good player. Like I accept the, the problems with his injury history. Um, but uh, on the on the basis of what's happened in the past, it's a hell of an improvement, actually. And you could make an argument for saying that um, that whatever the disadvantages of having no fans inside St James's Park, the effect is to kind of create a controlled environment to take all the kind of the variables and intangibles out of the equation. And what you're left with is a fairly unflattering picture of what life is like under Steve Bruce. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, a quick one uh, before we move on. Um, I would like to mention Neil Mopé, who is very, very exciting to watch. And I cannot believe how deep that man drops. It is, it's almost as deep as uh, uh, as Kai Everts. Um, 
Also, I thought uh, I thought that Basuma was amazing in this game. Apart from kicking Jamal Lewis in the face, I thought he was really, really good. So, Alex, I'll be excited to see your take on on uh, on Brighton in video form this season. I mean, that's sort of up to you, isn't it? I, well, <laughs> if you tell me to do it, then I'll. Then that's I'll the podcast version of a commission, right? There. Okay, great. Noted. Yeah. I'll, I'll put that on my little yellow notepad. I, 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 I'm going to I'm going to chip in on Basuma. I think there's a 30, 40 million pound player there in a year or two. Um, yeah. I think that's a look at the, the 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 red card is just a freak. Like you obviously didn't mean it. It's one of the strangest things I've actually seen. I didn't like I I try and imagine my leg bending in that position, and I think that if it ever were to, I'd probably end up in hospital. Um, I I also love um, that he. I know this was pointed out at the time, but that he he didn't really react to his red card. He stayed with um, Jamal Lewis because he was horrified at what happened. He yeah, didn't must react so to being sent off. He just like, yeah, fair enough. I'm really sorry. And he stuck around. You know, seems like, seems like a nice guy. Does indeed. And, you know, maybe that adds an extra 250 grand to his value, possibly. possibly <laughs> I think possibly. it probably takes some off. Uh, if you, you know, certainly Jose Mourinho isn't going to buy him, is he? You'll yeah, have Mourinho's to not going to want a, a nice player. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, okay. Uh, when we come back, we will talk about Chelsea versus Liverpool. Hi there, I'm David Ornstein, host of the Athletics Ornstein and Chapman podcast. And I'm here to tell you about Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job, so you can be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents, and the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. And we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping by using the code EPL20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving. And you can also listen to me on the Ornstein and Chapman podcast. It's myself, Mark Chapman, and the Athletics stable of expert writers, bringing you unrivaled insight into the biggest stories in the game every single week. We're back. Uh, we're going to talk about Chelsea versus Liverpool. Um, the first point that I would like someone other than me to make. And I'm going to take it to Alex, I think. Um, Liverpool supporters have been saying, uh, you know, over the summer that perhaps a new centre-back is in order. And of course, there are a couple of injuries in that in that department anyway. Joel Matip out for slightly longer, we think. Um, so Fabinho, deputised, stood in, um, uh, in, in, the, in the back line. And um, it, was, it had some, some very satisfying results, didn't it, Alex? Yeah, Fabinho did did very well. Um, it's worth noting that he he did play as a right back for Monaco um, before being signed by Liverpool, so he has experience, regular experience playing as a defender, not not simply as a makeshift one. He actually transitioned into being a defensive midfielder, so that sort of innate awareness of of defensive responsibilities is very much there, like the and offside as- line or something. Yeah, and and you know positional relationships within a back four because Monaco played a back four, so you know that it, it's probably a, a less tricky transition for somebody who has you know a couple of seasons, if not more, under their belt playing as a defender. Um, and I think he played occasionally as a centre back, 
But he's got, you know, the, the, the thing with Fabinho that is impressive is that his one-on-one defending, particularly against Werner in that game, was, was really good. So there are a couple of instances where uh, quite early on he, he showed Werner outside. He was able to get his body in the way and then uh, win a foul off that. There was another instance where he had, he was even further behind Werner actually. Werner was in a lot of space um, and Werner started to come inside and Fabinho was aware that Van Dijk was making ground behind him and therefore he was actually quite happy to let Werner come inside because he knew that that would then become a two-on-one and and he would be able to defend it as well. So I don't know whether that's an instance of, of Klopp having worked really hard on this in training you know, in in the run up to the game, or whether Fabinho just has enough intelligence and enough kind of awareness of 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 how Liverpool play to be able to to dovetail into that system really neatly. Of course, the other thing that you know, Fabinho is very athletic player, but he also has this good range of passing that we've seen from the defensive midfield position, and that again facilitates what Liverpool try to do with these kind of direct vertical build up um, plays from you know, either Fabinho or Van Dijk. So it, it seems like, you know, sometimes when you have obviously last season, uh, Fernandinho played at centre-back a lot for Manchester City, and that really seemed to rob City of, of the kind of intelligence and physicality that Fernandinho brings at the base of that midfield three. Uh, this didn't seem to be an issue uh, for Liverpool. And of course, that's partly because Jordan Henderson or uh, later on in the game, Thiago uh, could could fit into that pivot role really neatly. So you're not just moving a player back who's capable of uh, taking the role. You you also have enough cover ahead of that that it doesn't upset the system too much. I think as well it's interesting. There was a, a good thread on Twitter somebody did uh, last week about some of the issues that Joe Gomez has positionally. Um, Gomez is quite a front foot defender. He likes to come out and and make interceptions. He's a lot more proactive as a defender than Van Dijk is. Uh, And sometimes that does lead to him getting dragged wide or forwards. And then you can exploit the space in behind that. Um, I think Fabinho seems a little bit more settled, a little bit less rash possibly. Um, And so, you know, this is the sort of... um, not experiment because it's been forced on them, but given that Keiter is fit, Wijnaldum's in the squad, Oxley chamberlains in the squad, that there's enough depth in midfield that, that it's entirely possible that Fabinho will actually remain at centre-back for a little while um, and, and maybe that'll iron out some of Liverpool's defensive issues. Also, I would say that um, I think based on how um, high Liverpool's back line was Fabinho is kind of playing in the same place at the pitch that he would normally be I don't know it seemed manically high to me like you could see with the kind of even with the zoomed in TV uh, angle camera you could see when um, when Chelsea were attempting to play out of their back uh, from the goalkeeper and Liverpool's front four were pressing whenever they did make it through that front four and the press stopped there were two lines of a kind of flat midfield and the defence that were 
I mean, like six yards from each other. And it caused problems. You mentioned a couple of times, like those one-on-ones between Fabinho and, and Timo Werner, which were very interesting to watch. And I think Fabinho definitely came out the better um, as far as the game goes. But it, it does seem a little reckless, doesn't it? Can you, Alex, can you, I assume it's just to, to compress that space so that if, if the press is broken, that the ball is much less easy to, to break with. Can, is that why? Can you just explain why they would be so high to me? Yeah, it, it, it's completely that. Um, um, you know, the, Liverpool's pressing system, as we've we've talked about in videos before, has has changed over time, and and now the front three are more responsible for marking passing lanes, and the midfield three are more responsible for kind of almost man orienting. And you could see in the early stages of that game how uh, Wijnaldum and Keita would basically go man for man. Uh, against Chelsea's midfield and Henderson would sweep in behind that. I think we we saw over the weekend, you know, two instances of teams playing very high defensive lines, Liverpool and, and Southampton with varying degrees of success. And part of the reason for that is that, you know, Allison is very good at sweeping in behind, McCarthy arguably less so. Um, I know we'll come to talk about that game later on, but a couple of times McCarthy's judgment in committing to coming out to gather the ball was, you know, he, he didn't commit uh, and that caused Southampton problems. But also with Van Dijk and Fabinho, you, you have, uh, you know, two much quicker central defenders than um, Bednarak and Stevens. And so Liverpool are gambling on the fact that, that if they condense the space uh, and make it much harder to play through that midfield and defensive line, even if it does happen with certainly Van Dijk and, and Fabinho or Gomez or whoever it happens to be, they they have the pace to be able to recover those positions and get bodies back. Um, and other teams will gamble on compressing the space in the same sort of way. But if they don't have the pace at centre-back, like Southampton don't currently, um, it's less successful. OK, I would like to talk about Jordan Henderson as well, Alex, because he's, he's a flat... Uh, driven ball for the for the for the red card uh, Christensen's red card and what probably otherwise would have been a Mane goal um, because that's it's not an ability that he's normally associated with is it? What passing? <laughs> no, passing with such with such lovely consequences. Passing with with flair and style. No, it's it's interesting because I think you you have uh, within that Liverpool midfield you have some very technically capable players who are perhaps, I don't want to say reduced, because they, they perform their functions extremely well, but as Liverpool have gravitated more towards uh, generating uh, chances from from the wide players, particularly the full-backs, uh, using the, the pace of that, particularly the two front uh, wide players running in behind, the requirement for Liverpool's midfield to progress the ball has lessened, and so you don't you don't see that sort of thing happening quite so much but actually they are capable of it you know henderson is capable of of really good range of passing kiter is capable of of dribbling carrying the ball breaking the press that kind of stuff it's just that liverpool's midfield currently aren't really asked to do that um but they do still have it and and i think that's really important it's one of the reasons why tiago is going to be able to to slot in uh it's you know, Thiago does offer perhaps a slightly greater range of passing than anyone who's in there, but it's more of an awareness that that Liverpool's midfield can do this stuff, that they they have options 
if they need to deviate from what is a remarkably effective plan A. Uh, and, and Henderson's pass was, was kind of just a reminder that that plan B already exists. It's just that Liverpool often don't need to use it. Yeah, I mean, that's some incredible flexing, if that is the case. Um, Seb, I know that we, we've talked about Jordan Henderson before and, and you think, you know, people often describe him in, in terminology related to him as a character rather than as, as a player, right? I think so, Joe. And I, I don't understand, what that, I understand why that is because, um, you know, Jordan Henderson is always the, um, the first person to reach a Liverpool goal scorer. He's the most visible part of any photograph that follows a goal being scored. It's just, that's the nature of him. Um, but I think that that comes at the expense of an appreciation for what he is able to do technically. And I think... Although um, Christensen and Kepper received their you know, fair share of criticism for um, the situation which led to the red card and which ultimately changed the game, I think that's kind of a, of a, a ball that just that, that has no answer, that pass, because it's so flat, it's so well positioned, um, and it was quite well disguised too, that the only two outcomes from it are either a goal for Sadio Mane or a red card for either the, the centre-half or the goalkeeper. So that's wonderful, and I, I feel like... Um, it was nice to have that right at the beginning of the season. It kind of, you know, because when Jordan Henson was um, voted as the uh, FWA's Player of the Year, there was a almost a, a retaliation to it, like it was a kind of an honorary award, a sort of, um, you know, a uh, well done for just being, you know, the captain of this side. Um, whereas I, I felt that was a little bit of a disservice to to someone that has grown as a player that has adapted to just about everything he's been asked to do in, in during his Liverpool career, which if yeah. you go far enough back is an awful lot of range. Um, and uh, yeah, he changed the game. And so this was a kind of, this wasn't him dealing in intangibles. It wasn't him kind of shouting in dressing rooms. He's a really verbal part. Uh, he's a really verbal presence, really loud presence on the pitch, which, you know, if you turn the sound up during these games, you can definitely hear. But yeah. this was this was him having a technical effect. And um, yeah, it was most welcome to see that. The, the the criticism to that those sorts of votes really are more suggestive suggestive to me of what people think a footballer is, because I don't understand how you don't think that Jordan Henderson. I, I appreciate Kevin De Bruyne also has a fantastic season. You know Van Dijk has a fantastic season. Of course, <clears throat> in any given season there are always a, a number of players who have a very good season. That's just that's just football, right? But Jordan, you know, football isn't isn't all about making that pass, right? There are a lot of other aspects to it too. Uh, many of which happen off the pitch, you know, and I think there's a there 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 should be more of a of an of an appreciation of that. Clearly, there is on the basis that he won. So I don't know what I'm complaining at. I'm complaining at the backlash to the reality. Doesn't make any sense. Kepper, talk to me about Kepper though, uh, because I mean, what the hell happened, Seb? I think a number of things, um, and we've talked about this on on the pod before. In you know, in general terms, I think when a goalkeeper comes to a bigger club and he has a succession of bad experiences I think something happens to him um, and there are examples of goalkeepers recovering from that David De Gea is, is one clearly because he had a very difficult start to his Manchester United career but when he comes in when he deals with when he struggles to deal with the um, you know sort of the, the cliche qualities of English football so you know the physicality the congested six-yard box stuff like that um, but when he also fails to adjust to the nature and the volume of the criticism, which, let's be fair with Kepa, has been pretty continuous, you, there's no argument that um, that it's deserved because he has not been... I mean, he's a £70 million goalkeeper and he has been really poor. Um, but I think he's now in a position where mentally uh, it's probably almost impossible for him to recover. Uh, he's going to be replaced. Uh, we know this. Chelsea have already signed what they hope will be his replacement. Um 
But I think what's interesting is that if you if you look at him if you look at him dispassionately, forget everything that's happened at Chelsea and just look at his attributes and the things that he's good at, you can envisage a situation where he's going to recover. Um, so the next question is, where does he go and how does he get there? Also, because obviously, seventeen million pounds. Um, if he's allowed to leave permanently, Chelsea are going to have to swallow a huge loss, huge, huge loss. They'd be lucky to get thirty for him now, I think. Um, and also his wages, because he, there are very few places, um, very few teams under normal conditions, non, you know, sort of outside of this COVID environment. Uh, there are very few sides who would be able to spend that kind of money on a goalkeeper, um, or who would be willing to do so. Um, so his career is a, is really at a crossroads. I think that, I think the worst thing that could possibly happen to him is if he loses his place and he sits on the bench for the rest of his Chelsea contract. Because then his reputation kind of calcifies, doesn't it? It becomes, he becomes this guy. So when you have a bad yeah. experience, um, the best thing you can possibly do, and this isn't, you know, um, isn't exclusive to goalkeepers, is to go somewhere and correct it really quickly to, to kind of, um, to change the narrative around you and to put a different set of highlights on YouTube, ultimately. Um, and that we'll needs be to back next week quickly. with more life lessons from Uncle Seb. Um, <laughs> I would like. I, I, I think that's interesting. I, 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 let, we'll probably end up talking more about this in 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 the future or at the point where he is replaced. So we'll we'll, we'll return to to Kepa. Uh, you know, feel bad for him to say that. There are two players I would like impressions on though. We we will come to to Timo Werner second because we haven't really covered Chelsea yet, have we? But first, I would like to talk about Thiago um, because he is a, he is a a Champions League winner joining a team that recently um, won the Champions League. Of course, uh, the first thing I noticed about him when he came on at halftime to replace um, to an, an injured Jordan Henderson was that he was immediately calling for the ball, which is you know interesting. He's obviously a very confident player and he wants to make an impression. Um, you know, he he made some interesting passes. The fact that he wants to make an impression though was not lost on me or probably on any of his teammates because he did um he didn't have a great game and I, obviously I am not judging the quality of this this particular player based on the game but I do think it's interesting to watch how people adapt to new environments and I felt like watching Thiago play you could almost see you know in his play you could almost see the inside of his head which was like I have to make a good impression here I can show them what I'm what I'm great at and obviously that is particularly incisive passing being able to dictate a game dictate the pace he tried a couple of weird Hollywood balls that didn't really come off. He tried a couple of chips over the back. You can see how those sorts of things will work. And of course, we should preface this by saying, you know, this is a this is a, a game where you are two 0 up, and the game is you know not won, but you know, essentially based on Chelsea's lack of um, of attacking intent, they didn't really feel like there was much threat at that point. He did give the penalty away. He basically he seemed very very keen to impress and. Uh, overall, despite that that sort of leading to ha not having the best game, that's probably a good sign, right, Alex? Yeah. Uh, look, I th I think Thiago has been the subject of pretty fervid conversation. Um, obviously, there's a a wider narrative here about the degree to which FSG are prepared to invest in in Liverpool, and there's a perception among a body of fans that that they. Not that they rest on their laurels, but they don't necessarily invest in the team in quite the way they could do to drive the team forwards. And they trust in the system and they trust in Klopp's ability to get the best out of existing players. But that that's not a team that's been refreshed beyond, you know, the marquee signings of, of Van Dijk and Allison, um, particularly. So there's a lot of expectation around Thiago to come in and to be able to 
do that to refresh the team to give it something different and also to to provide a greater degree of creativity from midfield and and I think if teams you know sit deep against Liverpool sometimes occasionally it's it's harder to break them down and and Thiago's passing will be part of that so there's you know he comes into the team with expectations and I think it's understandable that he wants to make that impression at the same time you know this is a player who has just won the Champions League has been part of a hugely successful Bayern team for a number of seasons who was the one signing that Pep Guardiola was absolutely desperate to make when he moved to Bayern um, and and who does add all of those things with the caveat of of the occasional injury problem I think um, it will take him a little bit of time to adapt and obviously there's a there's a fitness thing I think this game was ideally situated for him because he was playing against 10 men and Liverpool were already well in control of the game so in terms of, of being introduced um, it makes sense and I guess in that regard you know it was an opportunity to to try some of those things and to see how they work um, and I think you're absolutely right that in due course those sorts of passes will come off with a greater degree of regularity obviously the stat that everyone points to is that he made more passes in one half of football than anybody in the Chelsea team had managed previously um, so you know he, he's going to add that that to Liverpool I, I think the interesting thing is is how the balance of that midfield works and you know what Thiago will bring is is the passing but also this intelligence in defense the ability immediately to transition defense into attack and Liverpool are already a fantastic team in transition um it's just a question I think of getting him fit bedding him in and and allowing that kind of natural confidence to to not take a battering um, and, and ease him in so that when these things come or don't come off, it, it's not a massive problem. It's not in a high pressure game. But Klopp will manage that process intelligently, I have no doubt. Yeah, OK. Uh, talking of midfield balance, I would quickly like to address a, a, a situation with or an issue, I think, with Chelsea that, that I noticed during the game before we talk about Timo Werner, which is that um, I, I just don't get the balance I mean you know we, I think we've talked about this before uh, Kante was often in this game the second furthest player forward you know Avers was dropping off a lot from that from that I guess not really the centre forward position but almost the number 10 position with no one ahead of him and Timo Werner was cut, cutting inside from the left a lot which subsequently meant that Kante was the player from that midfield three that was running past him and there was a particular moment about 60 minutes into the game 2-0 down Werner cuts inside and fires a, a brilliant pass through the line to Kante, um, who just shouldn't be there. I mean, like, I love him and he's amazing at what he does. But I, honestly, like, it what it was an incredible pass. Like, it, it was it was one of those passes that, that you know, had that pace on it, but, but a good player could turn it in one, you know, it wasn't so fast that if Callum Wilson was there, for example, he could turn the defender behind him in one touch. And whereas Kante kind of receives it and then sort of tries to turn and then loses it. It's not a criticism because it's not his game. I just don't understand why he's there. Like, I don't get why you wouldn't have, uh, you wouldn't want, a, a, you know, a midfielder who's better suited to those sorts of positions to be there. Because I, I feel that within the game, although Chelsea were very flat uh, as a team, and uh, generally speaking, you know, didn't 
didn't threaten Liverpool. Certainly the two teams seem to be, you know, some distance apart in terms of overall quality. It's not like they didn't create any opportunities. There were chances there. This was one of them. And if the right player was in that position, I just, I feel like that's that's potentially a goal, you know, and those sorts of things make a, make a, a huge difference. I don't get the, the, the balance. Uh, I don't know who wants to pick that up. Alex? I don't think Chelsea have got the balance yet. And I, I think this is a problem um, that... that really proliferates the team and I know we got some um, criticism after a previous podcast where uh, where Seb and I discussed how integrating all of these sumptuous attacking talents was going to be tricky for Chelsea but clearly you know Havertz played as a kind of very deep false nine in this game he started on the wing in the previous game um, there there is a, a lack of uh, you know an immediate sense of where these players are going to start on a week-in, week-out basis. I think also further back with midfield, you have the problem that Chelsea are not particularly good at transitioning the ball forwards without Jorginho. But if you have if you play Jorginho, then you have to play a midfield three, arguably, because he needs the protection. That automatically means that Kante is going to be in one of these flanking positions and, and asked to get forwards. Um so there's a kind of legacy there of, of when Sarri brought Jorginho in to be that controlling passer uh, and the rest of the midfield had to adapt around that. Lampard's been left with that situation without Jorginho in that progressing role. Arguably, you would put Kante at the base of that midfield to screen and then you could have you know Kovacic and Mount either side, for example, which I think would work really neatly. But then you're asking that midfield to progress the ball largely through carrying rather than passing so then where is the progressive passing coming from I think you know it's very very difficult with particularly the curtailed pre-season due to the pandemic and so on but if if I were Lampard I would have been looking at who was coming in and the way I wanted to play and kind of really trying to nail that down and then stick with it it seems like there's still you know, okay, we're only two games into the season, but it seems like there's there's a lot of chopping and changing happening, and there's an uncertainty about the best way, not just to integrate the new players, but actually how to play as a system as a whole. Um, you know, he played as a a, a three man back line in the FA Cup final, and and straight away we've you know we're we're sort of moving towards something different. It, it just seems like he doesn't quite have a handle on things at the moment. Uh, and that's why Kante is cropping up in weird positions. And I think they need to go back to the drawing board a little bit. On a very positive note, Timo Werner, Seb, is he's going to score goals, right? I mean, I know in this game, he, the luck didn't quite drop for him. But goodness me, he's a strange player to watch. Um, yeah. from a physical perspective he has this kind of hunched appeal you notice that his arms just don't move and I think that's why as soon as he said that I thought god that's true he has them at a sort of 90 degree angle but they don't move <laughs> they move only from the elbow down it's very weird um, but the speed with which he his feet reach the ball I, I, this man is going to score goals isn't he I think so I think what struck me once we got past our um, you know look how he runs funny analysis which is you know our kind of um we're very good at peak that. for the weekend exactly exactly i think what i noticed about him is his center of gravity if you put sort of um if you put a pint glass on his head and asked him to run sort of 50 yards at top speed would he spill a drop <laughs> because he has that sort of like it means that he can he can shift direction with the ball at his feet um 
he seems to have a really low back, uh, a really short back lift um, when he gets his shots off. And obviously, there's that pace. And in a, in a league like the Premier League, um, you know, where uh, physical attributes are at a premium, God, he just he looks lethal. Um, and obviously, there is sort of technical finishing ability a little bit in Germany, um, and he's he's going to score goals. Um, but I'm just really interested to see how he how he's used because um, it feeds into the conversation we've just had really about about balance, about how you format this Chelsea side right so that. Um, you know, the right elements are in the right parts of the pitch, um, but yeah, he looks uh, he looks fabulous. Um, it's pretty difficult not to be envious of a player like that, actually. He he's also just looked desperate to make something happen. You know, I think I think Avers felt... is going to take a little longer to bed in, and you know, yeah. little, you know, like he'll be more system dependent and perhaps be more, you know, require more from other players. But but Timo Werner just seems like a player who, when the other ten players on his team aren't getting anywhere, he could still score a wonder goal. I, I think so. I mean, the other, the the only asterisk I place against that is that I feel like because of how much money he's cost and because there are a few balance issues uh, for Chelsea, I feel like he's in a position to, to kind of bear the brunt of, you know, maybe some early criticism for Chelsea. Um, if you're a, it reminds me a little bit of, um, do you remember when Dennis Bergkamp joined Arsenal um, and he went through that sequence? I forget how many games, but it was it was a considerable number of games without scoring. And a lot of people, um, even back then, which is kind of the mid-90s, a lot of the tendencies that exist today were were um, in rotation. So, you know, words like fraud and, you know, he can't score. And he played this game at Leeds where um, uh, the Leeds goalkeeper got sent off and he still couldn't score. And that was a headline. Um, and it wasn't really anything to do with Bergkamp. And Werner, obviously, completely different type of player. But um, when, you, when you cost a lot of money, when you're a name, um, and when you play for a side like that, I think it's really, really important just to score. Um, and that over-eagerness, like that desperation to impress that you mentioned, I felt like, remember that chance where uh, Harvest broke through and he's offside, but um, squared the ball and um, and Werner scuffed his shot wide. There's a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of a, a lack of poise about him at the moment. So he does everything up until the point of scoring really, really well. Um, and then there's just the kind of a slight over-eagerness, which will fall away and melt away in time, I'm sure. But um yeah, what a player. What a player. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, listen, gang, I have to go because I'm um, a very busy and very important person. Um, but I, I, Seb and Alex, do you mind staying to do the last? We sure, we sure cover, yes. You press on to the TFO Derby. I wish you all the best. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I'm leaving halfway through. Au revoir. This podcast is brought to you by Hims. Now, if you haven't heard of Hims, they're basically your best mate when it comes to those tricky men's health problems. Balding is an awkward topic for men, yet a lot of us start to lose our hair before we hit 40. And the best way to take control of hair loss is to do something about it while you still have some hair. Don't wait until it's all gone before you do something about it, because it's more difficult then. Hims was created to make it easier for guys to seek care, especially guys who avoid seeing their doctor in person for awkward health conversations. Hello, because not everyone wants to have personal conversations face to face with a stranger in a white coat. Personally, I don't at all. I'm worried they're going to take me away. So Hims connects you to real doctors online, which could save you hours. It's completely confidential and discreet. You get a proper consultation and they'll give you sound advice on just what you can do to help your hair before it's too late. And it couldn't be easier to book your free consultation. Just go to forhims.com forward slash athletic. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot co dot U-K forward slash athletic. 
So behind the curtain, it's also Joe's birthday on the day we're recording. So that's a little birthday treat for him. Have 15 minutes off. Don't don't record. Just go and do whatever it is that Joe does when he's not uh, he's not working for Tifo. Alex, uh, Tifo Derby though. Um, mm. Why oh why oh why is your football team so so shit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of my um, my preseason ebullience is melting away. Um, Insofar as I'm ever a boolean, I think You're, that's not a word I associate with you. I'll be honest. It's, 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 no, uh, no, it's not, is it? Um, I, I mean, this this boiled down to uh, one thing and one thing only, really, which was a wildly high defensive line that decided that it wouldn't adapt uh, in the face of clear exploitation um, for some reason. Hassan Hootel said in the post game press conference that you know he he wants to play a high line he he's shifting towards this um as a means of stifling the opposition uh presumably because it fits in with the gagan pressing model of compacting the pitch seeking to force turnovers um and, and high pressure regains further up the pitch so it like it does make sense in that regard but as as was pointed out last season uh, Jan Bednarak and Jack Stevens are not the best defenders for that sort of system. They can be exposed for their their lack of pace. Bednarak is a much much better defender in a kind of low block backs against the wall. You know, high volume of clearances, high volume of blocks. Um, but here with with uh, Harry Kane dropping off into a space where you know Romeo first of all wasn't really quick enough to dominate that space and then after his first yellow card he was hooked um or quite a bit after his first yellow card actually but he was treading a, a fairly um, quite lucky line. to avoid a second yellow card I think, I, yeah I think so I mean he just you know this this is always the issue with with Romeo is that he there's a lot of things that he does quite well you know he reads the game quite well he's positionally not too bad um, he doesn't have the pace or energy that Hoiberg had in that position. Uh, and, you know, there's a reason why, by and large, uh, Romeo was you know, effectively the deputy for Hoiberg rather than um, somebody that will play alongside him. Um, so I think, you know, if if Southampton are going to persist with this high defensive line uh, and the reasons for it do make sense, then... Salasu is going to have to come into the side sooner rather than later, and they are still in the hunt for that quicker, more dynamic central midfielder that can line up alongside Ward Prowse and offer the same sort of of ball recovery, screening, and positional intelligence that Hoiberg demonstrated in that system. Explain something to me because I think um, I don't think this is particularly controversial. Uh, the game changes on Tottenham's equaliser. Um, now, there's a couple of bits in there that really confuse me tactically. First of all, um, Southampton have the lead, deservedly. They're a better team in the first half. Tottenham were absolutely dreadful. Um, lovely goal from Danny Ings. Um, the first point of confusion is, in that position, why are two players pressing Ndombele? Because Ndombele wants to be pressed. Like, when he's got the ball in that position, the way he's most effective is by um, skipping through the press with, in this instance, wonderful bit of balance, fabulous bit of skill, all the things that we know he can do. The second thing is, in that at that point of a game where I think there's probably about two minutes left until half time, they have the lead, they've been dominant. 
why is the defensive line there against players? Really, I mean, my theory on Tottenham is um, I found that, that game really conflicting because um, I still don't think they're any good. Um, I still don't think they created anything. They just took what they were given. Um, they took what they were given like five times, but then it, it was they were the same goals. Um, so what, what's the explanation for that? Is that just a, is that just a, a, a collective brain freeze? Um, what is the intention there at that point in the game? Because as, as game management, it's very difficult to rationalise. Yeah, and I think game management is is one of the areas where Southampton are very hot and cold. Um, you know, this this slightly uh, when when Carl Anker was writing about Southampton last season, he he would regularly refer to this kind of chaotic energy, which is the situation in which Ralph's teams tend to thrive. Um, you know, where where the press is quite frantic, where the opportunities to to hoover up second balls and and break at pace are what they're looking for and that means that when you know there are instances like for that equal I mean you're absolutely right in terms of pressing and dumbbelay that is that is just I think a kind of reflexive you know the guy's got the ball we go press him there's a there's a lack of of intelligence around the specific threat offered by that player, which is as a press-breaking midfielder, absolutely. Um, but I also think that that Southampton's ability to react situationally, by and large, unless it's swung massively the other way, and we did see towards the end of last season, particularly against the two Manchester teams, a very, very good, intelligent, backs-to-the-wall defensive performance. But it seems like Southampton either do one or the other they're either like high octane chaotic high press which was how they started that game and 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 played really well or there are backs to the wall trying to protect a one nil lead clearing everything through bednarak there isn't really enough maturity in that team at the moment i think to to assess the situation and go okay well we're one nil up we've got two minutes left let's just sit a little bit deeper Let's just try and control the game a little bit more, you know, keep possession. Southampton don't really have players who are adept at keeping possession. You know, it, it's not how the game plan works. Um, and I think, you know, Southampton's best players in that first half were people like Genpo, who are there to grab the ball, drive at the opposition, press intelligently, uh, create issues through their movement. It It's not about getting your foot on the ball and playing it around. Southampton did that a little bit, but it's not their natural state. And I think Tottenham, whether whether they kind of figured that out as as the game went on or whether they just realised that, you know, Kane was going to have the upper hand dropping off, I, I'm not entirely sure. But Southampton didn't alter. Uh, and I think that speaks to a, a lack of in-game intelligence, exactly like you highlight. So I'm not a um, I'm not a Jose Mourinho fan. I think that's been made fairly clear <laughs> over the uh, this, this podcast series. Uh, what well, I will well, say, and also your all or nothing video, which... my all or nothing video, my general output, pretty much everything I've ever written on Jose Mourinho is is kind of testifies to yeah. to, to that attitude. At what I will consistent. say, it, it exactly. You know, I'm um, you know I'm, I'm nothing if not consistent. Um, what I will say is credit for the halftime change because a couple of things. Um, very clearly, as the second half attests to, 
um, there was a, a strategic determination to use Harry Kane in a slightly different position and use him as a pivot for Son Heung-min. Um, the second part of that change, um, which was kind of forced by a conditioning issue with uh, Tanguy Ndombele, who's not quite ready to play um, more than probably about 45 minutes of a, um, uh, a Premier League game, also won a yellow card at, at half-time. But he brought on uh, Giovanni Lothelso, who... Um, difference between Lothelso and, and Dombele for me is the way Lothelso snaps his passes. Um, really good ball carrier, wonderful player to watch. He's kind of that that sort of number 10 ideal um, with a nasty little edge to him. He's uh, he's quite a nasty little player, which is, you know, the kind of, um, yeah, the ideal of the, the old Argentinian South American number 10. But one of the features, certainly in the building of the lead, certainly up to a 3-4-1, was Lothelso picking up um, passes, you know, in turnover situations, snapping a pass into Kane, and then Son exploiting the space behind him. Um, but that being said, the defence worries me, Alex. Like, it's like watching, I said this on Twitter, it's like watching someone defend with a table football team, where the only, the only option is to kind of slide your players in front of shots. And that's it. There's nothing else because Tottenham, even 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 when they um, even when the game was won, they just look so vulnerable. Um, and I can't. Um, and this goes for um, my Tottenham sporting friends as well. Between us, we cannot come up with a um, a convincing argument as to why Eric Dyer and Davinson Sanchez would start a Premier League game together. Like Eric Dyer, nice guy, um, lots to admire about him as a person. Uh, not a very good centre half. I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I don't see what Mourinho is trying to do because I, I feel also like your, your only guarantee with Mourinho is solidity. You know, your, that's your, that's the deal that you make. You're going to watch um, fairly negative football, but the result of that is clean sheet, solidity, uh, this general sense of security. We're almost ten months in. I don't see any of that. If anything, it's getting more porous. Discuss. No, I, I I agree, and I think it's worth pointing out that were it not for a very very good save from Hugo Lloris and a very very good block from Ben Davis, both off Che Adams' uh, opportunities, you could have been three nil down. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, th- those instances are coming off the exploitation of the space in behind. Lloris is a fine keeper, but he chaotic. He's he's not the, he's a reactive you know, goalkeeper. Yeah, he's a reactive, old-fashioned, good shot stopper on the line kind of goalkeeper. Um, he's not the sort of person you want charging out as that weird headed thing <laughs> up onto Danny Ings' <laughs> arm showed. Um, I I don't understand the Eric Dyer thing either. I I can only assume um, that there are two reasons for it. The first is that he is arguably too slow to play as a pivot. Um, and the second <laughs> is that because he very much wants to be a centre back, uh, Mourinho is trying to uh, not curry favour, but but shore up a position in the dressing room by acceding to that. Um, those are the only rational explanations that that I can find for it, really, because it it's not working. Um, it didn't particularly work for England either, um, and and it just seems like an odd one to me but you know I, I think this this Spurs performance it, it masked their inadequacies all over like thing you know yeah. Song Heung-min is a phenomenal footballer um yeah. and there is there is literally nothing not to like about him um I agree that Lo Celso 
was very good when he came on and he's he's a player that I would be building my Tottenham side around were I Jose Mourinho. Um but five two flattered you. Um and and I think that, you know, there's there's still after that abject performance uh, against Everton. I'd I'd say I'll wrap it up with this that when last season Southampton um had the 9-0 defeat against Leicester uh, and then the next game lost 2-1 at home to Everton which by any given measure was a better result uh, but actually a worse performance um, if if you saw the game you'd, you'd know what I mean and I think I think Spurs got a 5-2 win here as opposed to losing but there was no sense of other than some excellent interplay by by two players doing something repeatedly well. Um, there was no sense of progression here. It was, in many ways, the first half of that performance was actually worse than the game against Everton. Um, and Southampton should have been comfortably away. So, I, you know, if I'm a Spurs fan, yes, there's still an intrinsic level of quality in that squad that I guess would give me some hope, but I... I'm not. I'm not really seeing a plan at this point, uh, and that would be concerning. It was like the little bits of quality that the system couldn't quite crush. Basically, I, um, <laughs> I remember I, I texted you during the game to say that I think that, that this was actually more embarrassing than the nine nil to Leicester, just because <laughs> you shouldn't be conceding five goals at home to a Jose Mourinho team. It's just uh, this is this is correct. This is correct. Anyway, um, producer Adonis wants us to wrap up. So um, uh, without Joe, it always gets a little bit weird because um, he does the awkward ending better than anybody. But um, please join us uh, at another time for something slightly different, but also quite similar. Goodbye. <laughs>